Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 43. I'm Kip Clark, and today, because of busyness and other schoolwork she had to take care of, Carolyn actually cannot be with us, so I have with me Kyle Aronson, a film major, as a guest, and we are going to discuss the Oscars of 2015. So, hey Kyle, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Thanks for having me on, Kip. Absolutely. I'm happy to have you. And we want to start by talking about the Oscars in the context of award ceremonies, correct? Yeah, I think that's a good place to look at it at first. I mean, you have the whole 30 Rock thing where they bring to light the EGOT with the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Mm -hmm. um, as the four big award ceremonies. And so I think one thing that's interesting about the Oscars, it has this commercial sense to it that the Grammys do. But at the same time, it does not fall under one category of music in the same way that the Grammys feel like they do, where a lot of the albums that are nominated for the Grammys are things that everybody knows, but not necessarily everybody enjoys, because there's so many different genres when it comes to music. You know, the five albums, I think, that were nominated this past year at the Grammys for Best Album were the Beyonce album... Sam Smith. I can't even remember the five, but I think there's a lot of people who would have not selected those five to put in consideration for the top five albums. So do you think in award ceremonies in general, the popular opinion is not usually what gets represented? Well, that's what I think is interesting about the Oscars, is that generally the popular opinion, or at least the popular opinion of the critics gets very well represented in the Oscars, and it's kind of this blending of the stated objective good film that also has some strong level of commercial value as well. And I know, or I think I know, and I'm curious to ask, that a variety of people in the Screen Actors Guild, I want to say, get mailed distribution copies of films to review before the nomination happens. Can you talk a bit about that process? Because I certainly don't know very much about how it works. Sure. So the Academy Awards basically is a broad award ceremony in the sense that if you are part of a guild, if you're part of the Screen Actors Guild, if you're part of the Directors Guild, essentially if you're part of the Academy, Mm -hmm. which is everyone who is associated with film to a certain degree, has a say in who is going to win the Academy Awards. So before the Academy Awards, which is usually date-wise, it's the final uh, award ceremony. You have the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the Critics Awards, the Directors Awards, all voted by those people who are very specific to their own medium of film. This is a culmination of every single group, so you're getting a broader range of opinions that help create an objective and defined best film of the year or best cinematography of the year or best acting performance of the year. Do you think that screen actors and directors clash at certain points because they have different approaches to the medium? Oh, absolutely. I think it happens all the time. I mean, you can go back and you can look at from this past year just who has won different awards at different award ceremonies, that it changes based on who is voting for it. I'm almost positive that the the Directors Guild voted Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu as Best Director, but before that, at some of the earlier award ceremonies, Richard Linklater, who directed Boyhood, was winning a lot. And it's interesting because these award ceremonies are generally very indicative of who is going to win at the Academy Awards. So rather than sitting there and being surprised when you're watching, it becomes a much, much more prediction-based science, where you go in and you say, this person is going to win. For example, this year, everyone knew J.K. Simmons was going to win for Best Supporting Actor, and everyone knew that Birdman was going to win Best Picture 
by the time the Academy Awards had actually begun, because it had such steam and such heat coming into the Academy Awards. That makes sense. So there's a collaboration process that goes on in voting and deciding. Mm. Do you think the people that have the power to nominate are as unbiased in their collaboration as they can be? Obviously, individuals have bias, but do you think they balance each other out? Or do you think there's still a lot of heavy bias in particular areas when it comes to nomination? Well, I think that's one thing that people have had a lot of contention with recently, that the Academy came under some scrutiny this year in particular. I haven't done much study on previous years, but they came under a lot of scrutiny for not nominating Selma for having several award categories. It was only nominated for Best Picture and Best Original Song. And there was a lot of films that were very male-centric, had scientists and white men in the lead roles. The American Sniper film was incredibly controversial because people were worried that the Academy was voting based on who they were rather than who the general populace was. Because a lot of the Academy is comprised of older white men, and people were worried that it was misrepresenting film as it is today. So it definitely creates some problems, or at least it creates the impression that there are some problems in the film industry and in representation. And these older white males who gain membership at the Academy to then nominate films and then vote on the nominations enter because they entered into the Screen Actors or Directors Guilds first? Yes, so it's based off experience. You get a vote in the Academy Awards if you have been part of the film industry to some degree or part of some guild or a myriad of things that I am uncertain of the details, but I know that's the case. Do you think it will shift towards a more representative scope of society and time or that it is sort of this dominant ivory tower type institution that isn't going to shift very much with the times? I absolutely think that it will change with the times. I think that's just the way every system works generally in that 50 years ago no one would imagine that we would have a black president and a woman running for president but now we do and it's not unusual Mm -hmm. it might be unusual to some people older generation older generations but as time changes and people become more liberal generation after generation ideas start to take precedence rather than people in the sense that you are represented by your ideas rather than being represented by the color of your skin or what gender you are or how old you are. It's more about what you can bring to the table with your mind than what you can bring to the table with your skin color. So as a film enthusiast, what are some of the things about the Oscars that you are most interested in talking about? So I think one thing that was very interesting was the reaction to Selma this year. Did you see Selma? I did not. I know generally what it covers, of course, Mm -hmm. but I have not seen it. So, for anyone who didn't see it, Selma is about the march in Selma, 50 years ago, pretty much to the day that the film was released, and it doesn't delve into the life of Martin Luther King as much as I would have liked. But after the nominations came out in January, as we said, it only received two nominations, and there was a huge backlash, especially on the internet in this day and age. It was insane. There was a whole bunch of articles talking about how Selma was snubbed, about how David Ayelowo, who plays Martin Luther King, should have got a Best Actor nomination, about how Ava DuVernay, who was the director, should have gotten a Best Director nomination, and a lot of the questions that arose were what we were just talking about, where the Academy is largely comprised of old white men 
who did not take into account these artists, perhaps because of the color of their skin, perhaps because of their gender. And this was something that I felt very, very strongly about at the time. And my thoughts were that Selma was just not a good enough film to receive the awards and the accolades that people wanted to heap upon it. That a lot of the reasons why people loved Selma and wanted to back Selma was because of the subject material that it was drawing from rather than the content of the film and the filmmaking prowess. Right, and that's absolutely tricky. I can see where the public that chose to complain was coming from because you want art to reflect life. And some of the articles that you and I read talked about how in the past, movie making was simpler. People made movies about pertinent issues. They would cover the Holocaust in a film, they would cover racial issues in a film, and that would actually get more attention or more critical acclaim because it was very pertinent in the time and I think nowadays that sentiment has maybe eroded a little bit with more artistic films being made, more indie films being made at a lower budget. And I don't disagree that films should represent daily life and life for some people, even in some very underrepresented or oppressed parts of the world or society. But I think it does get tough when people look for different things in films, which is why I think it's then pertinent to talk about the Birdman versus Boyhood article that we read and examined some of the points therein. So what did you think about the difference between the head and the heart in terms of Birdman versus Boyhood? Well, I thought that was a very interesting article that you showed to me. I hadn't seen that article before, and I hope that on the website that you can post it so some people can check it out as well, because it definitely opened my eyes to thinking about it in a new way and thinking about Boyhood especially in a new way. The article was mainly focused on Birdman being an intellectual movie for your mind and boyhood tugging at your heartstrings. And I think that's absolutely true. Birdman is trying to do something that has not been done to that degree before. There was a Alfred Hitchcock movie, I think from the 1940s or 50s, called Rope, where he did the entire thing in one long take. He used a couple of filmmaking tricks to cut here or cut there or something like that, but it feels like time is not manipulated at all, that you're watching a play instead of watching a movie. That is essentially what Birdman is doing. It doesn't really feel like it ever stops because you don't ever see the picture disappear and change into another picture, and it's an amazing cinematic achievement. It's absolutely amazing. If we have more time later, we can get into some of the issues that I found with it. But as you brought up, it's interesting that the Academy voted for Birdman over Boyhood, when Boyhood probably related a lot more to the general public and to those who don't know as much about filmmaking and how difficult it is to accomplish something like Birdman, when Boyhood absolutely had much more sentimentality, it was much, much more relatable on just a human emotional level, but as far as filmmaking skill goes, Birdman was absolutely superior. So it really comes out to what do you value in your films? Do you value the technical prowess of a film, or do you value simply how it made you feel? And one interesting thing about each of those films, in my opinion at least, is that there was very little blending of the two. That Boyhood is an amazing art project, shot over 12 years. You just feel so good watching it the entire time, but it's not necessarily skillfully done. It doesn't exactly feel like you're watching something that is an amazing film achievement in the same sense that Birdman is, where what you're watching boggles your mind if you've studied film before, 
because it just doesn't seem like something that should ever have been done. It seems impossible. But at the same time, you kind of leave the theater feeling a little bit empty because it doesn't have the same sentimentality that Boyhood does. I think you're making some good points about the technical aspects of both films and that Birdman was shot in a very impressive way and that's why I think it resonates with people like you and the Academy as much as it did perhaps more so than Boyhood because I think shooting over 12 years is certainly impressive but maybe didn't involve the same type of technical prowess that Birdman did. One question I would have then is given that Birdman shows Hollywood or the acting side of things in a lot of ways and I think appeals to people in the Academy for that side of the business that I think they're very familiar with, do you think that's why it was so appealing to them? Because they get it and because they live that life and therefore can relate to either the character or the lifestyle of someone like Birdman, who's obviously shown in the film trying to navigate life in that arena, in that field of work, as opposed to boyhood, which is maybe a more broad stroke to try and appeal to everyone who's ever had a childhood, which is obviously all of us. Do you think that's why that decision was made and why Boyhood wasn't received differently? I think that brings up an interesting point in that the people who are voting for the Academy Awards are the people who are promoting these big Hollywood broad-stroke films that appeal to wide audiences, whether that be a romantic comedy, whether that be a superhero film. A lot of the people who are voting for the Academy Awards are trying to make those movies, make the movies that are making a lot of money that a lot of people are going to go see and a lot of people are just going to enjoy on perhaps a very, very simple level. And it's interesting that the film that had the most accolades heaped upon it by those who are generally part of the Hollywood system and the film business in Los Angeles was probably only created by a very small contingent of people who would ever be that daring. It's interesting that they're rewarding something that they would never try to do on their own. They're applauding something that they're afraid to commit to, that they would rather commit to financial profit than artistic prowess. So you brought up the point of Boyhood versus Birdman. There was a third film this past year that was kind of a dark horse in the best picture category, where it was down to Birdman and Boyhood at the end, but the Grand Budapest Hotel was also considered having the opportunity to win best picture. Right, and for anyone who's interested, I'm going to attach a PDF list of the nominated films, and that will be in the episode description if you would like to see all of the films, but the best picture of the year is one of the first columns. So I see American Sniper, Birdman, Boyhood, and of course, the Grand Budapest Hotel. So mm-hmm. what were you going to say? Right. So the Grand Budapest Hotel, for anyone who doesn't know or hasn't seen it, is a Wes Anderson movie. And he has a very, very unique style. He's considered one of the forefront indie filmmakers nowadays. And what the Grand Budapest Hotel or at least what a lot of critics and what a lot of movie news writers were saying was that this threw Wes Anderson into the mainstream, which I thought was a somewhat interesting argument in that, yes, it was by far his most successful film in regards to receiving acclaim because it was nominated for nine Academy Awards and it won four. The four that it won for are the best original score, best production design, best costume design, and best makeup and hair. And those aren't necessarily the ones that it wanted to win because it was also nominated for best picture and best original screenplay and best director, but it gave Wes Anderson the accolades that a lot of people thought he had always deserved. 
But what's interesting about that is it's kind of stating we think Wes Anderson is now in the mainstream because the Academy is saying he's in the mainstream, when if you go back and you look at his box office numbers, on a domestic scale at least, it's not even close to his highest film. It is second, but if we're adjusting for inflation at the box office, The Royal Tenenbaums would have made $74 million if it came out last year. Grand Budapest Hotel hit $59 million. These are all domestic numbers, by the way. And before that was Moonrise Kingdom, which came out in 2012 and made $47 million. So it's not that a lot more people are going to see the Grand Budapest Hotel than went to see The Royal Tenenbaums, than went to see Moonrise Kingdom. His films have had a relatively similar amount of publicity, but the publicity is really being pumped to a higher degree by the Academy, and the film news media is latching onto this and acting as though the Grand Budapest Hotel is really Wes Anderson's statement to the general public when the box office would state that it was actually the Royal Tenenbaums. Okay, so do you think in the future then, as he perhaps gets more critical acclaim and maybe becomes more mainstream, his films will change? Or do you think he's going to stay the course of his visions in some of these movies? Do you think he's going to remain relatively similar? I think he will remain relatively similar. If you watch his films, he has a very, very distinct visual style. He works with the same people over and over again, and his films generally have the same feel. They have a little bit of melancholy going on, but it's very, very whimsical. It doesn't feel like it's in the world that we're living in. It's hard to imagine he'll make a movie that diverges that much from the path that he's created for himself, especially now that his movies are finally being recognized by the Academy that why would he ever change up the equation that he currently has. That makes sense. One thing I'm then curious about when I think about the Oscars and the awards that are given, obviously movies are large collaborative efforts, and I know I've talked about collaboration earlier in the episode, but I'm not talking about those who nominate now. I'm talking about actors and set designers and all of the people who work on these films. What do you think the impact is of an award ceremony that has so much to do with group efforts and how groups are recognized because obviously certain directors are recognized for things but then there are films that receive a lot of attention for ensemble work or supporting actors do you think some of those awards are more meaningful or more important to focus on in the context of the entire award ceremony i don't think one award is necessarily more important than the others except for perhaps the Best Picture Award, because that takes everything into effect. But it really just depends on what category you're looking at. Winning Best Director is obviously going to have more resonance with the general public, because there's this whole concept of above-the-line versus below-the-line workers, where above-the-line is generally the screenwriters, the directors, the actors, a couple of cinematographers, people who would be recognized by the general public. Whereas those who work below the line in costume design, in hair, in makeup, in sound, really aren't known by the general public. Even someone such as myself who came to Kenyon and I studied film at Kenyon, everyone who went up there who won for best hair, best makeup, best score, I had no idea who they were because they just aren't people who you would Google on a normal basis. So it does feel probably that one award is more important than the other, and that probably 
feels that way as well because of the award ceremony itself in which you're holding off on a lot of the awards. The Best Actor and Best Actress awards are given at the end right before Best Picture. So it seems to be building to this grand conclusion of what the best awards are. But I don't think that necessarily means that one award is any better than the other except for Best Picture. Fair enough. I see in your notes that you've written down some bullet points about American Sniper, which I have not seen, and I mentioned in an earlier episode on violence in video games, in the sense that it valorizes certain qualities. Obviously, it's not a video game. But I think as a film, the hero that it made of Chris Kyle says a lot about what the American public values and about American principles and ideas of combat and warfare. And I'd be curious to hear some of your thoughts on the controversy and other things that you've written down. That's a really unique case, especially because I have not read the book that Chris Kyle wrote, the autobiography, but that book, from what I've read about it at least, glorifies that type of killing and that type of patriotism a lot more than the movie ever did. Clint Eastwood, when he was talking about this movie, explicitly stated that it wasn't meant to be political in that sense. It was meant to be a character study about what a soldier goes through when he's sent abroad and he's forced to do things that you've been taught your whole life are probably immoral if you're pointing a gun at another American, but in the case of Chris Kyle was okay because he was pointing a gun at what we consider to be terrorists. And it's very interesting to look at it through the scope of a modern lens. One of Clint Eastwood's earlier pictures, Unforgiven, which won the Best Picture Award for the Academy Awards in 1992, is actually a very, very similar film in that it deals with main character who is confronted with violence and how this violence changes him and perhaps hardens him over time. And that film did not come over the same amount of scrutiny simply because it was not necessarily a political statement. It was more of a period piece. It was a Western. I believe it was based in the late 1800s, but no one had any qualms with that film simply because it didn't have to do with modern current events. And I think sometimes it's challenging to look at films through that type of lens. It gets back to what we were talking about earlier with Selma, where people are frequently afraid to talk about a film that deals with a sensitive subject in a negative light because they have a difficult time separating the filmmaking from the content of the film or the original subject material. That makes sense. One thing I'm thinking about when we discuss things like American Sniper are the details that surround being a soldier and being in war. And what I've often heard from A lot of people that serve in the line of duty, be they soldiers or even firefighters or police officers, a lot of that job is, let's say, take a soldier specifically, 99% boredom and 1% action. The things that are represented in films and other media to show us how intense it is to be a soldier, it's a lot of waiting around or marching. You're not always doing fighting, and frankly, you don't win every fight. There are casualties, there are wounds, and then occasional victories. And I think films, to me need to capture their audience's attention because there's so much going on in our world today and so many forms of entertainment. Do you think directors like Clint Eastwood or others who make these films feel a certain pressure to emphasize or heighten certain attributes even if they aren't true to reality? Absolutely. I think that's the point of film in general sometimes too. Because when you're watching a film, you don't want to watch the mundane life of a human being. It works to some degree in boyhood in that that is more of an art project than it really is a film, in my opinion. But 
you want to make it as dramatic as possible so that you can really rope as many people in and you can create tension and suspense and grip them and make them feel as much joy or as much sadness in a particular scene as you can. So it's definitely that perhaps they're playing with reality and they're warping time in a way that really fits the film and fits the structure of a film better so that it's more enjoyable to an audience, but I wouldn't ever say that that's a problem. I think that's just the way that filmmaking is and the way that filmmaking will always be. Certainly, that makes sense. I know that you also wrote some bullet points on British biopics which have increased circulation within the Academy and they're getting more attention and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on foreign films and how they've been received by the Academy or even specifically let's start with British biopics. Sure, so the two that were nominated for Best Picture and probably the two that people would recognize most are The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch starring as Alan Turing Mm -hmm. which also came under a lot of scrutiny for the way that they depicted Alan Turing and the way that they depicted his sexuality Mm -hmm. and touching on perhaps he had Asperger's and autism when there have been a lot of accounts that say that he really wasn't like that. He really didn't lead that type of life. He wasn't that uncomfortable around people. And the other one being The Theory of Everything, which is the movie about Stephen Hawking starring Eddie Redmayne, where he won eventually Best Actor at the Academy Awards. I never have a problem with watching a British biopic, and I don't think anybody would. I think one thing that was interesting this year was that two of them that were very, very similar in that they're British scientists, they're conflicted men, one has to hide his sexuality, another one has Lou Gehrig's disease, that they're very, very similar movies. And one thing that was kind of brought to the table after they were both nominated was these two films are so similar in their content and in their base subject material, why were both of them nominated? Which I don't quite understand as a question, that you can't say, oh, well, we already got the romantic comedy here, so like, why would we ever consider another romantic comedy? Films shouldn't be limited just because they're the same genre as another. Speaking of genre, I wanted to ask if you think certain genres are considered higher brow or more worth accolades and awards than others. I imagine personally, even though I'm certainly not a member of the Academy, that rom-coms are not treated with as much reverence as others. And if that's the case, how do you feel about that? I would agree completely. I would say that there are definitely certain genres that are considered lower brow or perhaps appealing to a wider audience without really focusing on their art. You mentioned rom-coms. That's definitely one. Superhero movies, I think, are starting to get into that vein a little bit where they're usually not going to be nominated. You're not going to have people being nominated for Best Actor or Best Actress generally, but they get a lot of nominations for Best Sound, sometimes for Best Score, many different things. And there was a time when film noir back in the 40s and 50s was a pretty popular genre that people didn't look at in the same way as they do a lot of conventional genres nowadays. But I do think that just the basic drama films, the ones that kind of escape categorization, tend to be the ones that are heightened above the rest, which makes sense because a lot of the time those films have a little bit of everything. There's like an old saying in writing a screenplay that you want to make them laugh a little bit and feel sad a lot. I'm butchering it because it's not exactly what it is. But just in the sense that you don't want to keep your audience in one emotional place the entire time, which is frequently why 
broad comedies nowadays, such as The Hangover or Horrible Bosses. They're very enjoyable, and they're very fun, but they don't have the same lasting impression that a film like No Country for Old Men would have, or Fargo, or There Will Be Blood, or something like that. That makes sense. Personally, I enjoy both thinking and feeling a film a lot. I usually enjoy the feelings during the film, but I hope that with a great film, I'm still thinking about its concepts or its characters or even its problems it discovers in humanity or the human condition long after I've finished watching. And I'd be curious to hear what you think a great film does with your emotions and with your thoughts. I think my perspective is incredibly skewed in that when I watch a film, I watch it a lot more with my head than I do with my heart. Kind of discussing what we were talking about earlier with Birdman and Boyhood, I care more about the technical prowess than I do about the emotionality of it. And that's something that I wish I could change about myself, absolutely, that I could go into a film and just watch it once and just watch it as a viewer and not be thinking about why did they do that, why did all of these things happen, and just let my emotions take over. I think that is a better and more enjoyable way to approach films, but I think a lot of people, especially a lot of critics, struggle with that type of approach because They've studied filmmaking, they've studied how certain things should be done, how certain tropes should happen, and they expect things to happen that way, rather than just enjoying the art for what it is. There's a music producer by the name of John Congleton who was on NPR a couple months ago on Bob Boylan's show, and he blamed himself if he could not enjoy a piece of music because there's always something that you can find to enjoy in a piece of music. And I think that's very, very applicable to film as well. That being said, there are some films out there that are just laughable at how terrible they are. You know, they're screened at midnight in those funky little theaters in various different cities where it's like, come and see The Room, because this is considered one of the worst films of all time, and you're going to laugh because of how bad it is. But... I think it's really important to try and go into a film and enjoy it as much as you can for the art that it is. You have to go in with the expectation that the person who was making this put all of their heart into it when they were making it, and they put some of themselves into it as well. I agree. There's definitely a degree of artistic respect that has to go into every viewing session because people work very hard on these films. So Kyle, one last question I would have. Are there any really stand out or impressive films that in your opinion deserve nomination but didn't get any attention? So I wish that I had the opportunity to see more oddball films or see more independent films that don't get recognized in the area that we're in. Being in the middle of Ohio, it's very hard to see a lot of films, but there were definitely many films that I had the opportunity to see that I really enjoyed and thought deserved more recognition from the Academy or from other award ceremonies. My favorite film from last year was Nightcrawler. It starred Jake Gyllenhaal, and it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. It didn't win. It was just nominated, but that was it, and I thought it was a fantastic film. I thought Locke with Tom Hardy was really interesting as well in that it felt like the opposite of Boyhood. Boyhood takes a character and follows that character through 12 years, whereas Locke is you're trapped in a car with one man for 90 minutes. And it's essentially a continuous 90 minutes, as all he has to do is make one decision. He's by himself. It's all about these relationships, but he can only have the relationships over the phone. I thought that was a really amazing movie. There were other movies, Gone Girl. A lot of people saw Gone Girl and really liked Gone Girl as well as me. 
that just did not receive any, basically. I think it received a couple. Rosamund Pike was nominated. She was the lead actress in Gone Girl. So it's just interesting that there are so many people with so many different opinions, and you're not going to appease everybody. But those are just a couple of the films that I thought were surprising that they did not receive more nominations. Then I would ask, how do you think that could or might in the future change? As we've talked about, gradually things will shift towards a more liberal view over time. Are there any ways that viewers can write to the Academy or submit any kind of material to petition for more attention on maybe lesser viewed films? I don't think it matters. I don't think we should put that much stake in the Academy Awards because... By the time the Academy Awards roll around, all these films are out. They're all accessible to the public anyway. I saw Locke, I saw Nightcrawler, and my takeaway from them was different than what the Academy's was. But it doesn't really matter to me if it wins Best Picture, if it wins Best Actor, because I still saw it, and it affected me in a very specific way. So I don't think there's any sense in people getting worried or people throwing a temper tantrum because their favorite film wasn't nominated. I think it's just sometimes something that's interesting to think about and say, wow, I have a different opinion than this group of people or than that person but it's okay. I still saw that film. I still enjoyed it. And I hope other people can see it and enjoy it as well. Definitely. I believe that diversity of opinion is what makes things interesting when we discuss films and do come at them with different angles or perhaps haven't seen certain films that our colleagues have. And I totally hear what you're talking about. Before we close out the episode, any advice or suggestions that you would give to our audience, maybe films that you'd like them to watch or suggestions as to how to view the Oscars in the future? watch everything. That's what I try and do. As soon as they send out the list of what's being nominated, I'd like to see everything that's on that list. I usually don't have the opportunity to do so, but beyond that, try and watch things that you can be really proud of that you watched. I think it's great to have the talking points and be able to say, oh yeah, I watched that too, but I watched it because it was nominated for the Academy Award. I think it's really interesting to go through a year and pick your favorite movie and have it be something that the Academy necessarily doesn't recognize because it resonates with you more than it resonates with another person. And I think that really helps people stand out. Like you were saying before, the whole idea of diversity and diversity of interests is really what makes it interesting and what helps round you into a unique human being, whether that be with music, whether that be with movies, whether that be with books. Just find what you like, and the best way that you're going to find what you like is by watching everything that you possibly can. Absolutely. I think that's very well said. So, of course, Kyle, thank you very much for joining us. I think you had some wonderful things to say, and I'm glad that we got to share this conversation. Thanks for having me. I hope to be back soon one day. Sounds good. We would love to have you. And, of course, if anyone in our audience would like to comment or share anything, you can, of course, tweet at us. We are Stride and Saunter. We have a Facebook account, which is Stride and Saunter. We would love to get email from you, strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And we encourage you to visit our website and check out our links and comment on episodes. The website link is strideandsaunter.com. And of course, as always, we thank you all for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.